Welcome to Healthcare Upside Down with your host, Dr. Nick Vanterhaven, and brought to you by ECG Management Consultants. You can learn more about the show on the program's page at healthcarenowradio.com or on our blog at ecgmc.com hud. The U.S. spends more on healthcare per capita than any other country on the planet. So why don't we have superior outcomes? Why haven't the principles of capitalism prevailed? And why do American consumers have so much trouble accessing and paying for healthcare? Each week, Healthcare Upside Down will dive into these and other issues with ECG principal, Dr. Nick, and guest panelists as they discuss the upsides and downsides of healthcare in the U.S. and how to make the system work for everyone. And we end with your better pill to swallow, the conclusion to today's episode with insights on challenges and changes that improve healthcare. Now here's your host, Dr. Nick. Have you ever wondered if your car really needed that oil change or replacement of brakes? Many people either know or are presented with a sticker in their windscreen that reminds them they should change their oil every 3,000 miles. But the truth is likely different, not least because modern cars and synthetic oils have a better stamina and can last 5,000 or even up to 15,000 miles, much depending on the type of driving you do. But your local auto repair shop and service facility doesn't get paid if it doesn't do anything to your car. Bring your car in for a checkup and your mechanic says, everything is great, come back in six months, said no auto shop ever. So it is with our traditional healthcare service model, which is very similar, fee for service. We pay for things to be done. In other words, if you come in and there's no action or activity, under the fee-for-service model of payment, there is nothing or very little revenue for the hospital, clinicians, associated facility and staff. But when it comes to your health and wellness, we know that better health comes from the prevention of disease. If you never had to visit your doctor or undergo any treatment, then you'd be healthy and a well-designed health system would be doing a good job. For local village doctors in China in the past centuries, they were paid by the village population while they were healthy. When anyone got sick, they stopped paying the village doctor. It may seem an oversimplification, but as Einstein said, everything should be made as simple as possible, but no simpler. Healthcare, like your local auto shop and mechanic, needs to make a living, but the model to achieve that in health needs changing to incentivize the best options and choices where everyone wins, especially the patient who ultimately wants to spend as little time as possible in the healthcare system. Join me on the Healthcare Upside Down show as I talk with Gail Zotz. She is the founder and CEO of WiseCare that is campaigning to bring equitable, value-based healthcare to everyone. Gail is a single mum and survivor of late-stage cancer and domestic violence, who overcame huge challenges to not only survive, but bring real change to our healthcare system. Hi, Gail. Welcome to the Healthcare Upside Down Show. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here, Nick. Thank you. So we're talking value-based care. We continue to languish at this 30% implementation. It's been around for years. There seems to be some sense that it's the right way to do business, but we remain stuck in fee-for-service because that's what everybody knows and that's what they think is the right way to practice healthcare. 
you think it's because it's the right way to practice healthcare or because it appears to be the profitable way to practice healthcare. And so I think that it has been profitable, right? So there is not been an incentive to change, but when we force the change and make it super uncomfortable to be in fee for service, which is what we're seeing now, then for sure, we're going to see the financials change, which then incentivizes people to happen to the, do the right thing. So when you say force the change, is that part of the requirements for us to move to value-based care, assuming that value-based care is the better version of healthcare delivery? So um, yes, we're assuming that it's the better way of healthcare delivery, for sure. Um, I think that it's a mix, right? We saw this in EHRs that people knew that it was needed at some level and until it was completely mandated was when we saw the big change. So I think part of it is going to be mandated, but part of it, and I think that you see that outside of the government sector. So over 60% of all employees get their health insurance from self-pay plans, which puts all of the both responsibility and ability directly on the employer to say this is working or not working for us. And so what we're seeing, and this announcement has just been made the past couple months, the employer self-pay plan groups are saying, we're not gonna wait until it's mandated by CMS. It makes sense financially and it has better outcomes and it keeps our employees working because they're healthier. So we're going to go and create direct contracts immediately that are the same kind of bundle with quality that you see in government value-based contracting. So let's go back to the point about, you know, is it the right way to practice medicine? Mm -hmm. Because I, I think there are still folks that would suggest that fee-for-service is working really well. I'm making good money. And if I shift to this alternative version, I, I, there's no upside. There's no positive change for me in the healthcare system to allow me to let's let's say make money or at least break even and survive um, in a value-based care system, hence the resistance. So first of all, I am all for healthy profit in healthcare. I think it's, you know, so, um, but let's look at COVID, right? There was not a lack of volume. The hospitals were full. So why did they lose so much money? the people who were in value-based contracts did not. The only ones who made it financially the past couple of years had sustainable contracts that they knew what was coming in month in and month out, and then could divert funds and save themselves and their employees while this was happening. Those who were dependent on fee-for-service, which remember is a transaction, and so they look at what's a profitable transaction, and in that case, it's often, right, these sort of elective surgeries that got canceled during COVID. When you take away your profitable transaction and you're left with your unprofitable transaction, like keeping somebody ventilated for a month, you lose money. So for sure, just on a profit basis, we have already seen that you profit more in steady value-based contracts. So... The pandemic, once again, another, I, I, I hesitate to say it, but silver lining demonstrated that value-based care was a better way to, let's call it survive, but it sounds like you're suggesting that this is also 
better delivery of care and better outcomes. It's absolutely better delivery of care because if you look at the what is the financial incentive, suddenly you're financially incentivized to keep people home and healthy, which means the financial incentive is high touch early intervention, right? It is you're financially incentivized to invest a small amount in social determinants and home so that you avoid the preventable high cost uh, at the of acute care. It's the first time where you're financially incentivized to provide better care. So does that mean that post-pandemic, everything shifts back? Are we going to see the, the, the pullback as we've seen in the case of telehealth? Let's pick that as a, an, an example that you know, has to be frustrating for people that have experienced it, said, this is great care, I love it, it's access, it's remote, it's convenient, it delivers all the things in, in a blended model, to be clear, um, but we're already seeing regulations being pulled back to say, no, no, we're going to go back to business as usual or business pre-pandemic. Are we going to see the same thing with value-based care or can people see the light at the end of the tunnel here? So I think telehealth is a great example, certainly a, a long other conversation. Um, but I think that we're going to see for sure movement towards value for a number of reasons. So one is on the government side, it is becoming mandated. Um, you already see, I mean, CMS is committed by 2030, but even if that's a moving target date, um, they are already taking steps this year. That's one. Two, CMS and HHS have made it super uncomfortable now to stay in fee-for-service. If you look at the combined changes between MIPS and bonus reductions in this year, in 2022, physicians open up their checks this year and they're getting a 20% pay cut, according to Beckers. That's the combined pay cut. So all of a sudden saying, well, this is pretty uncomfortable, right? We're not making the profit in fee-for-service. And third is the evidence is just so strong, both financially and for a lot of other reasons in, in delivering healthcare. Yes, outcomes and patient experience, but also physician burnout. I, I mean, major top of mind topics of healthcare administrators, they are finding that it just is better business sense as they can figure out the best way to do this kind of cultural transformation that's necessary when you change the entire payment structure of a complex organization. So let's talk personal experiences because you individually have sort of experienced the, the poor outcomes of this fee for service that essentially amplify this point and demonstrate it, albeit at an individual level, but I think we can roll this up and say, this is not just you, this applies universally. No, exactly, 100%. Uh, six years ago, I was um, sent to the basement of a skilled nursing facility. I was um, very sick. They had wanted me to kind of sign off and stop getting care, even though they did not know what it was. Uh, a major reason was um, lack of diagnostics because it wasn't kind of covered by my age in the fee-for-service. Um, but it was also this sort of, what do we do with somebody that we're not really involved with the way you are when you have an attributed value contract? What do we do with this person on a holiday weekend who's at the hospital and getting sicker? So they sent me to the basement of a skilled nursing facility. 
Um, 10 months of chemotherapy, they found out a month later that I had cancer, um, undiagnosed, late stage. But let's look at the financials at that moment. It is hundreds of dollars a day to keep somebody in a nursing home more than keeping them at home. 30% more before you do anything to keep someone in a skilled nursing facility than home. The state had to care because I'm a single mother, we come from domestic violence. And so I'm literally a single mom. Um, the state had to pay for the full-time care of my children who were school age at the time when they could have stayed home, which of course would have been better for them, but also would have been cheaper, right? But then let's look at it 10 months, I'm in a wheelchair, I'm in an electric wheelchair, I'm legally blind, I'm on liquid only nutrition, right? I'm, I'm pretty sick. And I fight, fight, fight with my kind of patient advocacy to get to a kind of home environment, which was like a transitional housing because I was not having this sort of full intervention care that would happen in value. All of the classic bad outcomes happened. I got MRSA, I got C. diff, I got like, which if people don't know, these are some of the most expensive bad outcomes. They're also horrible, right? So I'm going back and forth to the hospital. I have, because it was in a fee for service and enough home care wasn't covered. We had a 10 year old administrating my IVs and doing wound care, right? So it was, it was not just unpleasant, it was ridiculously unnecessarily expensive for the system. So I, as, as I listen to that, I'm thinking, how on earth did you manage to turn that around from where you were to where you ended up, which is in a much better place with a positive experience, you were essentially fighting a system that that's the way things are done. I mean, you know, sans your capacity to turn that around, you would not be here today. Yes, and actually I attribute that mission and purpose to how I was able to get the strength to survive the entire episode. Because when all of these things were happening to me, right, and I'm horrible pain and I can't see and I can't walk and, you know, I, I mean, the whole thing, I was focused on the fact that change was possible and that I personally could help lead that change. And that notion of purpose is literally what got me through some horrible days and nights because I was looking the whole time and saying, this is working. This is not working. It doesn't have to be this hard. This is what we can do. And knowing the financial structure of possibility, I saw a path forward. I wasn't hopeless. I knew that not only could I get through this in order to lead, be one of the voices leading this movement, but I knew that it was financially possible that there was a path forward for healthcare. So I was not stuck in my own personal um, mess and despair, and I wasn't despairing about the whole system. And, and I was doing education from the bedside. So I was, I was in bed having procedures. I stopped having anesthesia for uh, bed, bed procedures and because it was just too much. I had so much drugs in me. And so in order to get my mind off of it, I would start talking about like communication and, and fall prevention, which is a big uh, cost saver. And what I, on the third time of doing this, I looked up and there was 15 doctors in the room. 
And I said, this is not an interesting procedure, right? It was a, a port replacement, cut in, take it out, put a new one. And I said, what are y'all doing here? They said, we hear you give talks. <laughs> I said, would you take requests? And I said, sure. So an hour later, Newport put in, sewed up, no anesthesia. We're talking an hour about fall prevention. It was amazing. 15 physicians. So, so and that, that was my why, right? Because yeah. I was then focused on that instead of the fact that I was having another port failure. So I, interesting, not only, you know, education of the, the folks within that who I think struggle with this. I mean, I, I think everybody comes in with the best intentions. I do too. You've obviously found a pathway, um, you, you know, navigated through this and importantly started to shine a light on it and also shine a light on where we should be. How do others approach this? What would you tell people is the key to sort of driving us to something that I think you have clearly articulated. Value-based care is, it, it has to be in our future to survive our healthcare system and continue to deliver what everybody wants, which is great healthcare to the widest possible population possible. But we still struggle with it. What, what are the key elements that get us there? So I, I think that one of the first steps is Pick a population, own it, and have uh, primary care doctors who wake up every day knowing, knowing, which is not always the case, that they are responsible for this group of patients. Um, I, that's the very first step. And if it's on the patient side or the community side, make those relationships. Make the relationships with primary care, certainly one of the first. The second is whatever side you are on, whether you're a physician group, a healthcare system, and a post-acute or a medical device or labs, you have the ability to come in, offer, negotiate, and contract your own value-based contract. So like, I don't think most people realize that. You don't need to wait. It, it really empowers you, whatever your role is. Um, so in order to do that, though, of course, you need to get some um, expertise available to you in sort of how the contracts work and how to make that possible. But I would say uh, make a contracting team for sure that and it's a very different team, than the kind of team that negotiates insurance costs. Um, the third would be to really look and create from the entire patient journey on the continuum of care. It's one of the pieces that I love most about value-based care and also one of the ones that I think people find most daunting, which is it really works for you because you get an opportunity to continue your relationship with a patient through the entire life cycle of their relationship, which let's be honest, is their whole life. Um, so, but what it requires is you creating some kind of group that has each of the silos represented whether those silos are already within your sphere or partners or the kind of partners that you'd like to have. And it's not just providers. It includes community-based organizations, faith-based organizations, transportation, you know, but do the really exciting work of, of mapping out the entire process of all of the continuum of care. It will give you not only opportunity to create value-based contracting that works and to be able to measure it, but it will also enable you to start the kind of working partnerships 
that are necessary in each community to start approaching healthcare systems without walls. So I, one of the key points that you mentioned there is primary care, which mm -hmm. you know for the longest time has been um, a, a, a second tier specialty. We've just had the match where interestingly, I think this year we saw an uptick in people applying to primary care. Did we? That's great. It, it is good news. And that's despite the financial challenges that are associated with that, because it's not compensated in the same way that specialty care that's tied to procedures, fee for service and so forth. How do we enable that to empower and deliver in the resources that are essential? Is that driven at the medical school? Where, where do we help fix or solve those problems? So I love that question because I think that a lot of times value-based care organizations are approaching it like fee-for-service and looking to do it off the backs of our primary care physicians. It is not necessary. Financially, you should and could and better start paying primary care more than in value-based contracts than they're making for fee-for-service. And if you're on the physician side, know that you have the ability to negotiate and advocate for that. The total cost of care is 100%. Primary care never takes more than four to six and a half percent of that. So why would we continue to strip the finances of a doctor who is really showing up and doing the really important work instead of looking at how we should and can save on the other 97% of care, right? Yeah, so I, I like that. I think, you know, given we've seen an awful lot of these primary care practices getting gobbled up in large systems, there is scope to actually pivot and push more resources to start to attract and, you know, deliver the right reimbursement to allow folks to see that as a, a, a genuine pathway. I think a, a, an essential component of that is allowing people to understand the value contribution that that is, uh, to me, it's the glue of value-based care. It is the glue of value-based care, and it's also the glue of a healthy healthcare system. The primary care uh, providers are, in my opinion, the most important piece of improving outcomes and lowering costs. And so now it's up for us in the business side to recognize it financially. And I've done the math and it's been approved by two actuary teams. You can pay doctors more and still make more profit. I love it. What a great way to finish. Um, we, we need to focus and, and reorientate our resources, start to support that glue to delivering better value-based care, moving away from this fee-for-service and helping everybody, not just the patients, which is clearly our focus, but also the clinicians and the people within the system who have dedicated their lives but need to be compensated accordingly so that they can live their lives to the fullest. Gail, thank you for joining me on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. It's really delightful. We are fortunate to have a wealth of healthcare resources at our disposal. Yet, as we have discussed in other episodes, the value we get from this spend is less than other countries and systems that spend much less as a percentage of our total gross domestic product. 
Our problems are not a matter of resource, but rather the allocation and orientation of that resource. The system of incentives has reduced our focus on primary care and prevention, and while we have seen a small uptick in the number of medical students entering these essential areas of practice, it is not enough to turn the tide, as we need more of this glue to pivot to a value-based healthcare system that aligns everyone's incentives for the best outcomes and the best value for our healthcare spending. Your better pill to swallow is to pivot your resources, focus and investment to primary care providers in your system. Don't wait for value-based care systems to be imposed, but wrap your arms around these systems and adopt them as quickly as possible. They make business sense, as we saw with those systems already delivering this type of care during the pandemic, and will be integral to not just surviving, but thriving. Your competitive advantage comes from being an early adopter of value-based care. The early bird, as they say, gets the worm. And in this case, the worm is better outcomes, economically sound a sustainable healthcare business, and high clinician and patient satisfaction. Thanks for joining me, your host, Dr. Nick, on this week's edition of Healthcare Upside Down. Until next week, keep solving the business of healthcare as if your life depended on it as one day soon, it will. That's all the time we have for today. You can find all of our episodes on your favorite listening platform by searching for Healthcare Now Radio. Also, check out our blog at ecgmc.com hud for summaries and commentary from each episode. Follow our show's social hashtag, HCUpsideDown. And join us each week as we work to solve the business of healthcare for everyone.